My name is Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. And whether you're joining us in person or online, we're just grateful, uh, yeah, just to have this opportunity to be together. And uh, yeah, before we get into this morning's passage, just let me pray for the word this morning. Father, we love you so much. We're so grateful for your loving kindness in our lives. We just pray that you would minister to us this morning by your word, uh, by your Holy Spirit. And just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a child, I went to summer camp in Hope. And the camp was called Camp Squia. I loved Camp Squia. And uh, one of my favorite activities to do there was rappelling. And if you don't know what rappelling is, that's where you're strapped into a harness with some ropes and you, you go down the cliff of a mountainside backwards while somebody at the top belays you. And one of the reasons I loved rappelling wasn't just the thrill of walking down the side of the mountain, but it was also uh, the place on the mountain where they hosted the rappelling. You see, it was... This, it had these three little buildings on it that were built long ago by a man who lived on the mountain. There was his tiny cabin, his woodshed, and of course his outhouse that he constructed on top of the mountain overlooking the cliff. There you can see a photo of it. And the man who lived there was a hermit. And a hermit is someone who chooses to live alone. And religious hermits, like the one who lived on the top of this mountain, They choose a solitary life in order to dedicate themselves to God in prayer, not wanting to be distracted by other concerns. And this fascinated me. This idea, um, you know, of a guy living there all alone in the woods, surviving off the land and braving the elements. And as a kid, I liked the idea of an adventure, right? I thought I would enjoy living in the woods like that alone by myself for a period of time, like maybe a week. (laughs) But the thought of living there alone, week after week, month after month, perhaps year after year, that was frightening to me. And I just couldn't understand what would motivate someone to do that. However, now that I'm older, I think I have a better understanding. In fact, I actually see a common thread in both the fear of living alone as well as the hermit's desire to get away from it all found in the account we're looking at in Genesis 1 this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. Genesis 1 is found at the very beginning of the Bible. And I believe this account tells us that we were made for the relationship. We were made for the relationship. Let's read Genesis 1, and we'll be going to ch- all the way to chapter 2, verse 4. Well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. 
And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the waters under the vault from the waters above it. And it was so, and God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and true trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vaults of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The fourth day. And God said, Let the waters teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the waters teem and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening And there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us, Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Female and male, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with its seed in it and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, last week we started our series where we're looking at Genesis 1 through 11, and we started by looking at Genesis 1. And I said that this story is foundational for our understanding of the whole biblical narrative, but also that it's foundational for understanding each of our own stories and the world around us. I spoke about the importance of understanding context and literary genre in order to understand the author's intentions. And how Genesis was written to the ancient Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. And so one of the intentions of this account was to correct the worldview that the Israelites had inherited from the other near ancient religions that they were subjected to while they were in Egypt. You see, those creation accounts from those other religions told them that they were of little value and that they, along with the entire world around them, was created out of chaos, by accident, without any purpose or care. But Genesis 1, it's a polemic against those narratives. It rebukes this idea that the world was made from chaotic forces or by chance. Rather, it is the result of the sovereign God bringing order. And this was no accident. Rather, everything was made with intentionality and loving care. And each part of creation, whether it's the stars in the sky or the the jackrabbits in the grassy field, they all have a reason for existing. And ultimately, that reason is that God loves them. And that goes especially for the Israelites whom this account was written to and for every single human being. Genesis 1 is the account of God singing this world into creation. And he sings because God loves what he makes. And that includes you because what God makes has great worth. And one of the, uh, you know, here's the thing. This is such an epic story that has so much more than we could ever cover in one sermon. And so that's why we are here again, looking at Genesis 1 again this morning. And one of the things that has puzzled me and many people in this passage is that throughout this account of God making things, it, it says like he made the water and he made the the birds and the land and the stars. And we read that and it seems to say to us that God has done this all by himself, that he did it alone. That is until it gets to verse 26. There all of a sudden it goes from a narrator narrator saying that God singular made these things. So all of a sudden God is speaking in the first person and here he is using plural pronouns in anticipation of what he's about to make next. Verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. What's going on here? Throughout the Bible, um, it teaches that there is only one God. And this was deeply rooted in the Israelites' beliefs as they regularly recited the Shema. The Shema was this prayer that they said uh, morning and evening 
which is the prayer that expresses the belief in the singularity of God, that is, in God's oneness and incomparability, and this is the central affirmation of Judaism. It begins with the words we find in Deuteronomy 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and your strength. And in Genesis 1, 1 to 25, it supports that oneness of God as he creates everything. But now that he's talking, now that he's speaking, it sound, he's sounding like this is a group effort. Some theologians have suggested that perhaps he's just using royal titles, like the new king of England might, right? When he, he, he wants a snack, he might say, we require tea or biscuits with our tea, right? Like, you know, I can't do a British accent. We can get Dave Barker up here to do that for us if we want. But, you know, nowhere in the Bible does God refer to himself with plural pronouns in order to suggest his majesty. Other scholars suggest that this might be the way God is referring to the heavenly court with the angels, right? So he's looking back at all the angels and he's saying, hey, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, right? But nowhere in scripture does it say that we are created in the image and likeness of angels. So I don't think that's what's going on here either. Verse one and two seem to give us a clue about what's happening. It says there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the darkness. Did you catch that? In verse one it says, God created the heavens and the earth and the word for God there is the word Elohim, which is just the generic Hebrew word for saying God. But then in verse two it says, the spirit of God was hovering over the water. And the word for spirit is the word ruach which means wind, breath, life-giving energy, right? The Ruach is from God. It's part of God, but it's also distinct from God. The author of Genesis is pointing out something to us that is very surprising. God has certainly made all of creation, and yet someone called the Spirit of God is there helping to make it happen. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle John will write about Jesus saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. And through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so John is saying that Jesus was there with God before the beginning, before the beginning of time or creation. And here in Genesis 1, he is right alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit responsible for making everything. And I believe that's why when God speaks in verse 26, he says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. You see this us And this hour, they point to a mystery. And that mystery is that within the one God, there is somehow plurality. There is 
more than one in the one. The living God is a community. And this is one of the places where Christians get our support for our doctrine of the Trinity, the understanding that God is three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a being in relationship. Some people have suggested that God made humans because he was lonely. But if God is a being in relationship, then that suggestion couldn't be further from the truth. This passage shows us that God was already in relationship. He already had the perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony. And I understand that the Trinity is a mystery that our minds cannot fully comprehend, but recognizing that there is a relationship in the Godhead, this is not only vitally important for our understanding of God, but also this is essential for our understanding of ourselves as beings made in his image. You see, if we are made in the image and likeness of God, and one of God's essential and defining qualities is that he is a being in relationship since all of e- for all of eternity, then that means we must be made for relationships ourselves. See, a crucial part of what it means to be human is made in God's likeness, and that means that we are made for relationships. I think that's why the life of the hermit scared me, Right? I wouldn't want to be all alone. I'm fine with a few solitary hours every day or even maybe a couple nights getting away from people. But being in complete isolation, that's what they do to the worst criminals. And it's inhumane. Studies show that social isolation causes humans to deteriorate. It's associated with higher risk for health problems such as heart disease, depression, even cognitive decline. We were made for relationships. That's why broken relationships often hurt more than broken bones do. However, I also think that the hermit understood the implications of this Genesis 1 account in a way that many of us overlook. And that's we weren't just made for any relationship, but we were made for the relationship We were made to be in a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We were made by that relationship, for that relationship, and to live in that relationship. And this is why God ends his creation song here by making the seventh day, the the seventh day or the Sabbath day. This is actually the climax of the story. Sometimes we think that the the highlight of this account is when God made humans. What does that tell you about us and how highly we like to think about ourselves? But God hadn't reached the pinnacle of creation when he made humans. He goes on to make the Sabbath. I remember uh, growing up and meeting people from outside of my church and talking about the differences, the way that our families approached the Sabbath. Their families had very different ideas of the Sabbath than, than my parents had. Um, you know, we delighted in Sunday. Yes, we went to church on the Sabbath, but we also enjoyed family hikes and getting together with friends and always enjoying really good food. That was always a part of the Sabbath, right? And so it was something that I looked forward to. But my friend's parents 
wouldn't allow them to even go outside and play on the Sabbath. You see, that's exerting energy, which is work, and you have to cease from all of your work on the Sabbath. So basically, what they were allowed to do was to sit quietly at home and to attend church services. That doesn't sound very delightful to me. I like the church services part, don't get me wrong, but not playing. You see, that sort of legalistic view of the Sabbath, I think that's a far cry from God's intentions for the seventh day, which is all about enjoying our relationship with him. Daryl Johnson says that God did not give more creation on the Sabbath. God gave himself. God shares with humanity that in himself, that which he has kept back so far from creation. Ronald Wallace writes, On the Sabbath, God calls to humanity. Listen to me as I draw near to you. To speak and respond to me as I draw near to offer you my fellowship and seek this day to draw you to myself. Cease from your absorption in creation and look up and take from me that which cannot be found in the routine and rhythm of earthly life with its toil and rest, its work and play, You see, the seventh day is intended not simply that humanity should relax, but that they might find rest and freedom and joy before God and in this creation through blessing which God has especially attached to this day and promised to those who seek it and keep it in faith. Do you see the promise of joy found in him that he is holding out for humanity in the Sabbath? not stifling it, but it's joy and freedom. God created the Sabbath not only so we could enjoy what the creator made, but so that we could enjoy being in relationship with the creator himself. Notice in the text how after each time that God has made one of the first six days, there is this refrain that says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning, and it goes on all the way to the sixth day. But that doesn't happen on the seventh day, right? Augustine says that's because the seventh day was never intended to end. That it's the apex. It's the culminating point of creation. You see, God intended us to live our entire lives enjoying what the creator created and enjoying being in relationship with the creator. We were created by that relationship, for that relationship, and to live in that relationship every single day without end. But as we all know, things went sideways and we're not living according to God's desires. I think most people know or feel that they understand that we were made for relationships. They feel the need for them. There's this built-in drive that all of us have, even the most recluse person has this, to one degree or another for a relationship. And this comes from being made in the image of God. But I think the problem is that most of us seek to satisfy our need for relationships in the wrong ways. You see, we dive headlong into all types of relationships, whether it's friendships or romantic relationships, and consciously or 
more likely subconsciously, we expect that those relationships to satisfy our desires and longings only to be disappointed because they can never provide us with the meaning and the satisfaction that we all long for. Often people approach marriage this way, only to discover that though marriage may provide you with a wonderful friend and a partner for life, that your spouse cannot completely satisfy the relational longing that each of us has. And the saddest thing is, is that this lack of satisfaction sometimes results in married people blaming their spouse for their dissatisfaction, concluding that something must be wrong with the spouse, and, and then they start to wonder or look to another person to fulfill that relational need. However, we'll never find what we're looking for, uh, what each of us is ultimately searching for in another person. We will never find what each of us is ultimately searching for in another human being. It's only in a relationship with God where you will find the true satisfaction because it's the relationship that each of us was designed for from the very beginning to have. We weren't made for just any relationship. That's why a pet dog or cat just won't do. That's why a boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife, or even children will never be enough. A relationship with God is the most crucial, essential, and only relationship where you can finally know who you are and what it really means to be a human. It's only in a relationship with the Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus, that you can have an experience of unconditional love. Love that, for you that is so great that while you and I were God's enemies, He reconciled us through the death of His Son, Jesus. It's that love and that relationship that is offered to each of us through faith and nothing else will satisfy our longings or satiate our desires other than God's love through Jesus which lives in us by his Holy Spirit. That's the relationship that we were made for. And that's what I think that hermit who lived on that mountainside understood. In fact, there are men and women just like him all around the world today who continue to dedicate their lives to living in prayerful solitude with God. And they live in this solitude, but they're not alone. They understand that we were made for that relationship with God and their willingness to sacrifice much to have this amazing relationship with God, it inspires me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not moving out to the woods anytime soon. But their example shows me that it's only my relationship with God that defines me. It's not what other people think. It's only being in a relationship with Christ that can make me complete. There is no other friend, no relative, no romantic relationship that can do that, not even a spouse. And this is good news for Andrea, my wife, because giving my life purpose and meaning is too big a burden for her or for anybody else to carry. Only God can do that. The hermit also shows us that if we want our relationship with God to flourish, then we're going to have to make some difficult choices because we can only achieve healthy relationships through sacrifice and prioritizing. 
we're only able to achieve the kind of healthy relationship we desire through sacrifice and prioritizing. And that's true of all of our relationships, whether it's with another human being, and the same is true with our relationship with God. So if we're going to have a flourishing relationship with God, it means that our relationship with him, it's got to come first. That means spending time with him in prayer, being in his word, being with his people, the church. These things must be our top priority. That means prioritizing my relationship with Christ because it's more important than my job, than my hobbies, my other interests. My relationship with Jesus is more important than my other relationship, including my relationships with my wife and my children. You know, parents, I'd like to speak specifically to you as one parent to another and as a person who was a a youth pastor and a pastor to young adults for almost 20 years. Parenting is rough. can be. It's hard enough to get your children to brush their teeth properly, let alone to get them to church on time with a happy attitude. I know what that's like. But while we still have them under our care, our number one commitment has to be doing all that we can to encourage our children to be followers of Jesus. In the end, they're going to have to decide this for themselves. That's the vulnerable part about parenting. But in the meantime, we need to prioritize or perhaps reprioritize our lives and our children's schedules so that they clearly testify that our relationship with God is of utmost importance. That's why I believe that being a part of the church community is more important than sports or hobbies or other commitments that we want for our children. Heck, it's even more important than getting good grades. And if we believe this, it will show up in how we prioritize our time and how we schedule their time. Now, some of the pushback that I have heard from parents in the past on this when I have said similar things before is that going to church or youth group doesn't make one a Christian and they also fear that their children will resent Christianity if they miss out on the activity that their children loves for going to church. And in response, I would say a couple things. First of all, you're absolutely correct. Going to church does not make one a Christian, just like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. But there is a story in three of the four Gospels, and I think it's listed in three of them rather than just one because of how important it is. In this story, a rich young man runs up to Jesus and he asks him a very important question, a question I think all of us have asked before. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus and this young man have a little discourse. They go back and forth. And Jesus finally tells the guy what he needs to do. He says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. So he tells them, sacrifice, prioritize, come follow me. And this young man, he weighed up the options, what Jesus was offering him, being a disciple and eternal life, to what he had to sacrifice. And sadly, when he weighed these two things up, he didn't think it was worth it. He didn't think that what Jesus was offering him was worth giving up his earthly treasures and pursuits. He didn't think eternal life was worth it. 
The guy walked away and Jesus was sad, but he didn't go chasing after him. And he just said to himself and to his followers, he said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? It's harder for them than it is for the camel to go through an eye of a needle. And his disciples were gobsmacked and they said to him, hey, we sacrificed everything to follow you. What do we get out of it, Jesus? And he said to them, you know, this is where we expect where he's, he's going to tell them about their reward. And we think, okay, we know what they're going to get from their sacrifice. He's going to say, here it comes. You get eternal life. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Do we see what Jesus lists as the first thing that you and I receive in exchange for following him? It is the family of God. That's the number one thing he lists. It's other brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers found in his body, the church. Sure, Jesus says, you'll get eternal life. But he almost says it as an afterthought. Jesus highlights his church family as the main benefit for sacrificing and giving up our lives to follow him. And this must mean Jesus thinks his church family is amazing. Amazing enough that we should love it and prioritize it. And honestly, I think that most of us don't think church is nearly as great a gift as Jesus thinks it is. And that goes for me too. Sometimes it's hard for me to come to church, right? We all find it difficult to get along with such a diverse group of people, especially when the church doesn't behave like we know we should or do the things that we should be doing. It's hard sometimes to go to church and sit through a pastor's sermon who drones on and on and on. (sighs) But friends, Whoever said that loving something should be easy or always bring you delight? God loves us, and this may be news to you and I, but we are not always easy to love, and how we behave doesn't always bring God delight, and yet he chooses to love us, and he is calling each of us into a relationship with him through his family, the church. And one of the ways that we can help our children to choose to live Uh, to choose to have a healthy relationship with Jesus is by modeling for them our own love for Jesus and his church, which requires making sacrifice and prioritizing. You know, it may not always be easy to be the church together and to love it, but God, I have to thank you so much because you have shown me through the church these tastes of your kingdom and heaven that I have experienced. I heard a story about a woman in our congregation this week who who was at a loss for buying groceries and the medication she need, and then she was given an anonymous sum of money from someone in church. That's like the third time I've heard that in this last year. I myself continued here. I've heard this morning someone saying, we continue to pray for your wife. Thank you. 
in the body of Christ, we not only get to, to shake hands with one another, but Jesus reaches out through our brothers and sisters and blesses and heals us. And you know, all of this applies to all of us, not just parents. In another passage where Jesus talks about priorities, he says this to his disciples. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You know, these are hard words to hear from Jesus. But what we have to understand is that Jesus wants us to have the best and most amazing life. His purpose is to bless you. That means to help you to flourish and to thrive and to be a blessing to others. And he says that at the end, he says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You won't just find some mediocre life. You will find the best life, real life. That's only found in Jesus. But if we start prioritizing other things in our lives over our relationship with him, he says here, we'll just end up losing what we've longed for all along. The fulfillment that we look for in success, that love that we hope to find in good grades or career, or sports, friends, or family. We hope that they would bring us meaning and contentment and self-worth, but they cannot do it because they were never designed to do that. We can only find those things in God because, friends, you and I were made. We were designed for that relationship. And so we have to prioritize that above all things. To live into our relationship with God, it will take sacrifice. But we don't all have to become a hermit. And, but probably the thing we will have to give up, it will be something that we want. It'll be something that we really like. Maybe it starts with giving up some sleep in order to wake up and have a quiet time with God to start your morning. I remember a youth of mine who she was really wanting to earn some money so that she could buy clothes and save up for a car and some things she liked. But she decided that she was going to quit her part-time job that required her to work on Sundays because she prioritized the church family. I was blown away by that. That's amazing. If you're wanting to prioritize your relationship with God and start delighting in the Sabbath, I would encourage you to learn more about Sabbath. There's a website put together by John Mark Comer. It's called Practicing the Way, and we have it up there. And he also writes a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How We Can Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And it's a great book. I can lend it to one of you because I only have one copy. Uh, but this is some of the things that we can do to learn more about putting these these things into practice and starting to, to live this life that God is calling us to. But regardless of how or what it may be that we have to sacrifice or prioritize, it's all difficult. But we need to ask ourselves the question then, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust that if I lose my life for his sake, that I will truly find something worthwhile at the end? 
Is it worth selling it all in order to come and follow him? Do I believe him when he says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it? I do. And I really hope that you're with me in that pursuit together so we can pursue the relationship that we were made for together. Would you stand up and I invite the worship team to come up and let's pray together. Oh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you were there from the very beginning, not only bringing us this beautiful world that we live in and not only creating us, God, but that you were there delighting in all of these things. And I just thank you that you delight in each one here. I pray, God, uh, first praise that you have made yourself accessible to us and that you desire that we would all be in a relationship with you and that you are a relational God. I pray for each one of us that you would give us uh, joy and courage and hope to overcome whatever might be impeding our relationship with you and that it's worth the sacrifice. Father, I pray for, for parents this morning who long for their children to be in a relationship with you and maybe they're, they're far off. I pray that you would also give them hope to know that you are our great father. You are the ultimate mother. You are the hound of heaven who will continue to pursue your children with dogged determination because you desire that none should perish but that all should come into a relationship with you because your love is so great for us. We love you too. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.